Well, well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Pastor Steve Brooks, Pastor Kurt Borden, coming to you, whether you're here in the room or you're joining us online tonight, uh, we are glad uh, that you're here. Uh, We are going to uh, continue in our study, kind of remember our grand focus for these uh, next 12 months. Everybody has it, right? Walking with Jesus. Come on. (laughs) There we go. There we go. That is right. And um, one of the things that we're trying to do both here in Bible study and on Sunday mornings is to kind of begin at the beginning. And um, whenever we read certain things in the Bible, one of the things that we're all guilty of is, hmm, that's nice, and then move on without really digging into the depths. And Pastor Kurt is a master of helping us dig into the depths, and then I can dig us back out. <laughs> How's that? That's the much greater skill right there. <laughs> so I want us to begin tonight like we normally do. If you're new to our Bible study, we always begin our time, well, 90, 95% of the time by reading and praying through a psalm. Um, Psalms have this uh, beautiful way of centering us on the beauty of God's presence with us and the uh, wondrous thing the wondrous thing it is to live a the Psalms first word is what Anybody know what the first word in the Psalms is Nobody knows Oh my gosh Kurt what are we coming to Blessed yeah blessed that there's something and, and that's not an accident there's that's not an accident what the people who collected the Psalms are trying to say by starting with that one is if in some way we can stay centered in these 150 prayers, these 150 songs, that we're going to get into a place where we're happy, blessed, very well off. The word in Hebrew is actually Asher. Nate, who's at the back, who runs our, our media for us, named his son after the first word in the book of Psalms. You knew that. You knew that. You were doing that, right, Nate? But I want you to notice something. What does Psalm 2 begin with? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Mm. Would it surprise you that adversaries and enemies are a major theme in the Psalms? Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes? Feel like that? ever hope not that you kind of live your life navigating from enemy to enemy always thinking and believing that somebody is coming after you that was david's story right kurt Mm -hmm. and it can feel like that for us but it's interesting the psalms approach our enemies uh in a little bit different way than let's say jesus does and that's what we're going to be exploring tonight So, in light of that, let's pray Psalm 3 together. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody tonight. We are continuing to walk through Jesus' hometown. And there are a lot of challenges, but I think even more blessings when we begin to see things through his eyes. Hopefully tonight, in relatively quick fashion, we can connect some dots for you. Jesus is going to share arguably his most 
powerful teaching in his hometown area. He's not in Nazareth, but he'll, he'll be relatively close, within 20 miles. And it will change the world. But when Jesus spoke these words, he did so in a neighborhood that was very well known to him, very well known to his people. So the, the great sermon is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And Pastor Steve is going to take us there. But before I take you there, or he does, I, I want you to, to see the neighborhood. Now, last week, we looked at sort of the geography and really geology of Galilee as a whole. And it's really divided into two parts, if you remember. It is, on the one hand, an incredible breadbasket. And we might have some photos of that. It is the place where what kind of trees grew? Walnuts, yeah. The, the Jews thought, this is the craziest tree I've ever seen in my life. But they had walnuts growing in this valley. Um, if, if, go back to the map for a second. Um, this Jezreel Valley, right next to palm trees. So there it is. So we're, we're right down there. And I left my pointer on my desk, but sort of... Nestled in between these two mountain chains. It's sort of broken up right there, but those mountains are not very, very tall. But um, nestled in there is, uh, is this incredible climate, uh, plenty of rain coming in off the ocean. Soil is just fantastic. And Jesus grows up right on the corner of it, Nazareth. In ancient times, they didn't farm down in the valley because the land was so valuable. They, they lived up in the mountaintops. So that's one part of Galilee that Jesus is really from, and he knows it. But the more business savvy area is up here around the Sea of Galilee. So that's actually the area that we'll move in today, these, these foothills. Um, and if you can see the dark section right by the E in Galilee, that's where we're going. That's where the Sermon of the Mount was given. It's this natural amphitheater that occurs, and you'll see it multiple times tonight. Uh, but it's sort of the perfect stage. And it has a history that is shocking uh, beyond probably anything. So in order to get there, I need you to think back. How safe was your hometown? Probably very safe. Did you lock your doors? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a different... <laughs> Where'd you grow up, David? <laughs> <laughs> I know where I know where you grow up. Yeah, I mean, I remember my grandparents leaving the keys in the car, and who would, you know you you just be nuts today to do that, Pastor Kurt. I uh, Bond, hello, test test. So I grew up in that environment where I, we left our keys in my car. So I worked uh, in Dallas uh, during the summers of when I was in college. I lived with my grandparents. And I left the keys in the car, and my car left. <laughs> How do you think the insurance company felt about that? Not very good. Yeah, they do that, apparently. They That's wander right. off sometimes. Yeah. We are blessed in so many ways that we sometimes don't really count them. We don't remember what it is to have a childhood, right? To be free of the evil that people can do to each other. One of the many blessings, I think, of the United States is that for most of our history, we have been very, very peaceful. Uh, there are obviously forces that always try to change that, but, uh, man, it's so different when our kids don't grow up in fear. Unfortunately, that's not the world that Jesus grew up in. And as much as I can instill this upon you, you'll begin to understand, I think, why he does some of the things he does. And in even greater sense, be amazed that Jesus is the kind of man that he is in the backdrop. Maybe it's redundant to say that the Middle East is violent, but especially in the first century when Jesus was alive, it was incredibly violent and had been really decades, about a century leading up to it, on and off really for thousands of years. But that, that crux of about... Uh, 1 AD to about 120 AD is just massive. And I'm going to try to get you through the details 
um, not trying to be gory, but I, I really want you to feel it, to see where he grew up. Again, as a kid, hearing the word Nazareth and Galilee, you know, you just think it's a town. It's like any town. They go fishing in the afternoon, and, and there's soda on the step, and they get their milk delivered. I mean, it, but it, his world was nothing like that. So when, and this is from someone growing up in El Paso. I grew up in El Paso. It was very safe. It really was. For Believe it or not, for a long time, we could uh, leave our doors open. It was a farming community. Everybody grew cotton and irrigated. And then things really began to change. And by the time I was serving as a pastor, uh, one of my parishioners was killed, was murdered. And have you ever known anybody murdered? I mean, actually in your, it changes you. It changes you a lot. This uh, uh, lady had run a nails uh, salon uh, not far from our church, and they never caught the murderer. She was killed after work one night. And it really devastated the church I was pastoring at the time. We were somewhat of a large church, but she was well-loved. And so still today when I think about that shopping center in that area, there's always that cloud over it. I mean, she was killed. Everybody had left work. She was shutting things down. Somebody, still don't know this day who did, uh, killed her and then drug her back behind the establishment towards a dumpster. And every time I see that, it's just, you know, like the scripture says, the blood cries out. Uh, You just, you wonder, oh, that's the world that Jesus grows up in. He can point to, this happened at that village. This happened over there. And one of the greatest places this happens is where he's going to give the Sermon of the Mount. So I I pray you'll hear it tonight, but with new ears. So part of my dream, and my sort of renewed focus here, is to make a dream come true that I can take you from Bible study here, actually, to Israel. We're working very hard to finally pull this off this summer. COVID not, you know, delayed us. But I don't want it just to be a tourist trip. You know, you can go with anybody to see where Mary got her nails done and her hair done and where, you know, Peter's sock shop was open. Um, but to, to do what I've always tried to do to bridge the gap between what is real history, what is real archaeology, matching real Christian faith. Because as Christians, we do not ever need to be afraid of the truth. The truth has backed us up, verified what we believe. Archaeology is the greatest proponent of biblical truth there is. If you can just get the people that are trying to spin it and crush it and have their own political agendas out of the way. So I really want to unleash you all with some of the best, at least what I know, archaeologists in the field. It's somewhat challenging because it's different, difficult to do. And part of my challenge is I'm going to <laughs> unleash you or maybe unleash them on you. And it may not be the because a lot of them are Israeli. It may not be the easiest kind of conversation. So tonight I'm going to try to experiment on you. And so I'd like your feedback afterwards. This is as close as I can think I can get to what your experience could be like when we go to Israel. So tonight would be like going to a place called Arbel, which the Israelis know very well, Christians know very well from a different point of view. But in order to get you ready for this conversation, I need to condense some of the history, what everybody knew about Galilee and how this this framed things in. So, Ken, I've got one more map, and I know it's not in order. <laughs> so this is the overall map of Judah and Galilee with Samaria uh, smashed in the center. Just to sort of root everybody We have to remember, Jesus grew up, um, it should be after this one, Jesus grew up in the wrong side of the tracks. He doesn't grow up in Jewish territory. He doesn't even grow up really within, yeah, well, that will work. Um, So sort of Jesus, it's further south here, but Jesus grows up way, way, way down here. The Galilee was a region that had belonged to the Jewish people, or better, uh, Israel, about 800 years before. That's a long time. That's a lot of water under the bridge. 
but they had lost this. Uh, the country had, for the most part, been depopulated, and others had taken it primarily for the agricultural purposes. They weren't so interested in the Sea of Galilee because it doesn't go anywhere, but they really wanted the agriculture. So the Jews had lost, lost all this and really had given up. It was a painful memory to look back at what had been their promise from God, but they lost it. So like we talked about last week, there was this brief window in history when the Greek empires under Alexander the Great that had dominated for a couple of centuries in the ancient Near East uh, were falling apart, uh, specifically the Seleucids, and that's one of the names you hear the Israelis talk about. So one of Alexander's, the Great's general, uh, was named Seleucius, and so his descendants are named the Seleucids. It's their general word for Greek. They are falling apart, and Rome is moving in to fill the vacuum, but it's taken a while. Uh, Rome has a lot of people to kill before they come to kill you. So Israel tries, under Judah, under a set of kings that they had, and this is another term you'll need to know for tonight, uh, Hashomian. So these were Jewish kings that show up about 150 BC to about the time of Jesus. The last one dies shortly before. Now, these Jews uh, had lived under Romans. Well, I'm, I'm wrong. They had lived under Greeks. And there were prophecies about them that showed up in Daniel. I won't go into it all tonight, but one of the first antichrists that is ever introduced to us in the Bible is one of these Seleucid kings, you should know his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. The fourth. The fourth, exactly, because that's such a good I name. Keep him on his toes. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, he tried to eradicate Judaism. He outlawed its worship. He outlawed circumcision. Famously, if your child's son was caught being circumcised, his soldiers would kill that your child and hang the dead baby around your neck. This is what I mean. He was an antichrist. He takes over the temple. He corrupts it. Daniel has all sorts of prophecies about it. So during this period, the Jews said, you know what? We've had enough. And there was uh, a family uh, and think of them as farmers. That's really what they were. And the old grandpa was named Judas. Judas Maccabeus, which is a Greek word for the hammer, which I think is about the coolest name in the world, Judas the hammer. One of the things you'll notice as we explore Galilee is that the name Judas is wildly popular. Now we think, of course, Judas is the traitor, right? So we don't like the name Judas. But centuries before Judas Iscariot corrupted the name, there was Judas, this, far, this farmer, this father. And he decided one day, by God, I've had enough. And so he literally walked out with his sons and picked a fight with the first Greeks he could find. And it started a revolt against these Greeks. And it, it was a lopsided affair. These poor Jews, they're not really warriors. Uh, the Greeks of Alexander's time were the best in the world. Uh, best soldiers with hoplite formations and long sarissa spears, if you've ever seen them. They even had war elephants that they're importing from India. And so what does a poor Jewish farmer do against a war elephant? Run, yeah. There's, I probably told this story before, but I love it. Um, so this revolt is going, and these, these Jews are fighting back. And they run across one of these war elephants, and they just have no idea what to do. And so they do run off, uh, except for one Levite priest, who, uh, for faith or fear, we don't know, but he decides, by God, I've had enough. And he goes over to take on this elephant. So he rushes the elephant, and he gets over to it, and he gets under it, basically, and has no idea what to do. Because the Greek archers are above, you know, killing everybody, and here this little Jewish guy is sitting beneath an elephant. What do I do now? So the story goes that he just took his spear, and he kept stabbing it. 
And it didn't seem to be doing anything, but he just kept doing it. And so this goes on for a certain amount of time, and finally he hits something in the elephant, and it dies and falls over and kills him. And so, you know, that's the end of this great Jewish warrior. Um, But much like Vietnam, the Seleucids rule an empire that's really from Israel all the way to uh, the Indian border. So, I mean, all through the Middle East. They have much bigger fish to fry. So they give up essence. They just withdraw. The, The Jews are too much to handle. So they just leave. And this is what I mean, that this, this brief window of independence. The family of Judas the Hammer becomes these Hashemian kings. Okay? They are not related to David in any way. They are not related to anybody that we would know biblically. They were just these rebels. And because the rebellion worked, they were put on top. So they are kings that drove out the Greeks. So for this brief period of time, they try to bring biblical Israel back. They send, like we talked about Sunday, settlers from Judah, the home country, all the way back up north to Galilee. They send soldiers to occupy the fortresses in Galilee. And then they ask for people, uh, like people from Bethlehem. Will you load up your family and your goods and will you start again as farmers in Galilee for no other reason than just faith? And if you really look at how they won their battles, it was just faith. They were not great warriors. They, they were outclassed at every turn, but they have this belief that just won't stop. They know they can't win, but they know that God is with them. So they keep fighting long after they probably should surrender. So this formula is setting itself up that Jews are not the great fighters, but they have incredible faith. So they move up north, and pretty soon it becomes clear that Rome is coming under Pompey. If you remember, he was a rival of uh, Julius Caesar. He's who Julius Caesar first defeats in Egypt, all that story. Well, Pompey was the Roman uh, conqueror of the East, at least from the Roman perspective. And so he will march north, and he will, when you come to attack Israel, you come from the north if you're Rome. And so the first place always to get attacked is Galilee. So he will defeat, and you'll hear about this battle a little bit. He will first defeat the Jews trying to defend uh, Galilee uh, as part of their nation, and then continue to move south. It's sort of a speed bump. The Jews are never the majority in Galilee, not during this time period. So that's really important as you think about Jesus growing up. Jesus was never in the majority population. He was always a minority. The little villages that he grew up in have a couple hundred people living in them. The big Greek and Roman cities right next to him of Tiberias and Sipporah are about 10,000. Jesus avoids all those areas pretty much like the plague. Uh, To get a little off field here, one of the things that uh, I hear that is unfortunate is that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Okay, I'm here to tell you that's not true. That's the stuff they put on Facebook and it sounds good. Jesus does have quite a bit to say about homosexuality. He condemns it, actually, in Revelation. People tend to, well, it's only the Gospels. Well, let me tell you the other thing that's going on. Jesus does not go to the towns that are right next to him that are full of this behavior. He avoids them. Now there's one exception we're going to talk about on Sunday, and it's it's a big exception. Uh, He goes to a really bad, bad town. But the, the big ones where the Romans and Greeks would be practicing this stuff, we have no record of him ever going to any of them. So we need to, again, put this in into context. But the thing that you need to hear about Galilee, that is as soon as the Romans march through it, they conquer the Jews living there and they move on, then as soon as the legions leave, the people in Galilee rise up to fight again. This is their nature. Again, what they have is faith. 
they're not going to lay down and take it. Rome and its legions, and one of the things the Romans mastered, you know, when you watch Hollywood movie, the guy comes out with a sword, right? And he's swinging his shield and he's going to beat you down. The Romans never fight that way. The Romans have basically engineering of combat. They have a, a phalanx, or really a legion, in, and it's never designed for one person to fight. The Romans create a machine. So it is a wall of shields with uh, daggers, they're gladiuses. And all the soldier is designed to do is to march when he's told, hold his shield when he's told, and stab when he's told. He doesn't aim, he doesn't look, he just does this. All day long, well not all day long, but just stab, 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 stab until I get tired, and then I fall back and another guy holds his shield and just stab, stab, stab. This is incredibly innovative way to fight because other groups will run up against the Roman legions and again everybody's screaming and hollering and the Roman is just stabbing you all day long. Uh, this is a very, very hard military formation to beat and it'll take centuries before anybody really has a counter to it all the way from britain uh, i mean the romans were gutting the scots and the brits all the way down to egypt and africa north africa iranians i mean when they get into their their mode they, they just cannot virtually be stopped the only group that gives them unbelievable amount of hardship are the jews and again, they don't have great generals. They don't have tactics to counter these things. They just have a religious zeal. So what happens when you have an unmovable object? What is that phrase when you have an un, uh, unstoppable force hits an unmovable object? That's where Jesus grew up. These Jews were not going to give up their homeland, and the Romans were not going to take no for an answer. So the brutality there is just unimaginable. I wish I could control Hollywood studio that they would uh, really put out for us things that, that capture what's going on, how bad it really was. It would have been, especially in Judah further south, but you would see it in Galilee. Daily, the Romans would crucify people. So what, what kind of day is that? I mean, you're farming, you're out taking care of whatever you need to, and oh, about 11 o'clock, the Romans are back at it again. I wonder who they're killing today. And that guy is going to lay up there naked until his body is just rotten, or the, the birds and scavengers have taken it. You, you can't grow up in that kind of place and not be, not be affected. So if we look at the geography of Galilee, there's not a tremendous amount of defensible areas. It's pretty open from the north. It's not like there's an Alamo somewhere where they can hole up like they do in the south at Masada. So they have to get creative. One of the places they get creative is right next to the Sea of Galilee in this place called Arbel. And if you could imagine a steep a wall of a mountain with caves right in the middle. These caves could be reached by rope ladders or some of them are lower enough that you could put a ladder to get up to them. So in times of desperation, the Jews will retreat into these caves and try to continue to fight. Again, if a Roman legion is coming by, they want to stay in that formation with their shields above and before them, and they just want to stab you. Uh, they don't want to get out and you know scream and holler. So to hide in these formations is a pretty good tactic because it forces the Romans to, to alter what they do. But long term, it's, it's very, very difficult uh, to and stay in control of Galilee. So there are three huge battles that I'm going to try to show you by benefit of Israeli archaeologist. <laughs> so let me take you to Arbel. First, appreciate the raw beauty of this place. This is where you come out of the mountains of Nazareth, headed into down into the Sea of Galilee, and it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. This is also where the Sermon of the Mount will be heard.
words that will change the world. But before all that happened, blood was spelt on these mountains, the likes of which Galilee had never seen before. So let me show you, and I want to, I want to see if you can understand him. So we'll just start there. So can we cue up the video? There it is. If rocks could talk. above sea level and almost 400 meters above the Sea of Galilee. Now north of us is Mount uh, Nittai. Mount Nittai is named after a famous... It's not called that. To, it's called that today. It wasn't in Jesus' day. It's just Arbel in Jesus' day. But. Second century BC. He was the preceding judge, or another description would be vice president of the Sanhedrin. Now, this was probably during the reign of John Horkinus, the Hasmonean. From historical perspective, it's important to note that the name Nittai has been given to the mountain only in uh, recent times. In the Second Temple period and Roman periods, which is what Jews call the time of Jesus, for the two sides of the creek, Mount Arbel and Mount Nittai have hundreds of natural caves which have been transformed to enable men to use them for residence, especially in times of need. Three significant battles took place here. The first two battles occurred during the period when the Hasmoneans, a Jewish dynasty, ruled the country. These are those the first, Judas the Hammer people I was talking about, the Jewish kings. Tells about Demetrius Soter, who was king of the Seleucid Empire in Syria between 162 BC and 150 BC. Demetrius sent Bachides, who was a Seleucid general, to Judea to suppress the Hasmonean revolt. Bachides, on his way from Syria to Judea, passes here in our bell, conquers the place and kills many of its population. The governing pendulum continues and Judah Aristobulus of the Hasmoneans take control of Galilee in 103-104 BC. Can, can you pause it for a second other two at all? Oh, good job. All right, how are we doing? Does he make sense? You can understand him pretty good. So you're really getting the Jewish perspective of these caves. Again, we'd say Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. Now he's jumping forward in history quite a bit here, and I want to warn you. So Herod kills the last of these Hashemian kings. So these last Jewish kings, Herod gets in a revolt with. Basically, this king comes with Persians, drives Herod out, kills Herod's brother, just about kills Herod. Herod escapes to Rome. And Herod will go to the Senate in Rome and said, hey, sure could use some of those legions of yours. Can I have a few? And they come back with Herod and they kill everything uh, they can get their hands on. So again, they start in Galilee. This, this last, Antigonus is his name, last Jewish king is trying to stop Herod. And if Herod will, of course, make himself king of Judah. Uh, Herod, remember, is not Jewish. He's an Idumenian. He's an Edomite. Uh, they're, they're not Jews, but Herod still wants to be king of Judah. So that, that's what he's, he's shifting to um, as he goes down into the caves, um, which I'd love to take you through the caves. But anyway, so let's go. Significant battle here in our bell. We will discuss them along the track. 
There are more than 120 caves located in several levels. They were hewn or prepared for the local to reside in. In some caves, there are two to three rooms. Typical height is two meters. You can see that next to each group of caves, and we'll see it later on, there is a rock pillar that makes it difficult to access them. In different places, passages were found between caves that are on different height levels with the help of hoon caverns or using ladders that were placed internally and were hard for outsiders to see. The cave's complex was organized as a living unit with functional rooms that were probably intended for cooking, sleeping, storage, and so on. Many of them have been hit over the years by severe landslides. In addition to the caves, there were several dozens plastered caves, most of them for storing water, and a few with ritual purification baths in Hebrew called mikveh. Can you pause for a second? Down below. All right, we've been doing this Bible study long enough. What is a ritual bath or a mikveh? Clean yourself before you go to the temple. And what do we as Christians get from that? Baptism. That's where it grows from. So what is this telling you archaeologically about the people who are inhabiting these caves? They're very religious. Yeah. In the middle of a war. I mean, this is like putting a baptismal in your bunker uh, in the backyard for when the world ends. Let's have my MREs, my ammunition, and my baptismal. If you need help building your baptismal in your survival bunker, I'll be glad to come help you. No, I'm kidding. But it's giving you a sense in terms of of material culture of the culture of Galilee. They're going to resist. And as soon as the Romans leave, what are they going to do? Yep, they're going to come down out of these caves and we're going to fight for our country again. Because God gave us this country and we're going to hold on to it. I don't want to give you a false sense of that these people are just radicals and they're they're consumed. Because this is the world that they live in. The Romans are really the ones that have started this. The Romans are really the ultraviolet ones. But what's happening is sort of the evil of Rome is spreading. And the people are becoming that which they hate. So for time's sake, I'm going to cut this kind of short. Would you listen to him for 20, 30 minutes out there? I mean, this, this, is, this is what I hope to do, for real, um, to, to take you there. Tonight, we didn't have to sit in the airport and go through customs, but that, that's, this is really what it'll be like. You know, some climbing, some moving, and you'll have to do a bit of translating, um, because some of the best historians out there, again, he's Jewish. He, he has no real axe to grind with us, um, but he can tell us a great deal about the history. Uh, let, let me go through the history quick. This place will be a bloodbath again and again and again. Uh, people will fight the Romans. Um, they will lose, um, probably because they get on flat ground. They'll have to retreat in the caves, and the Romans will besiege the caves. Uh, the Romans develop their engineers, so they develop these little baskets where they winch down, and they're full of soldiers, and they have these long hooks, and they'll stick them in the cave and try to grab any part of the body they can, and then just yank you out and throw you down the cliff. I mean, so it's, it's incredibly brutal. The Jewish rebels will have their families in these caves. And again, Herod is so hated by the Jewish people, it's, it's difficult to put into words. So unfortunately, the practice begins to commit suicide before you surrender to Herod or the Romans. And in one particular operation, about 30 years before Jesus is born, um, the Romans have the upper cliff, they have it on the bottom, Herod is down there, and they're going cave by cave. Now you heard, how intricate are these caves? Pretty good. They have, what, connections to each other? I mean, they, they can move around. There's a lot they can do. But it, it's come to the end. I mean, the, the Romans have, have pulled out everybody they could and then sent soldiers in. They've set fire to everything they could, and it's coming down to the end. And so a lot of the Jews are just committing suicide. Herod, who, he's a warm, kind guy, isn't he? 
There's a Jewish general that will actually fight a battle here later on. Um, and he, he, he's a Benedict Arnold. He changes sides and joins the Romans. But his name is Flavius Josephus, or that's his Roman name. Um, his name, his real name is Matthew Matanyahu, but he changes it. Anyway, he tells us that Herod is standing out there, and Herod is actually kind of sickened by all the people that are killing themselves and throwing themselves down the mountain. I don't know what you have to do to make Herod feel bad, but it's something. And so finally Herod comes out and says, hey, just quit. Just stop. I'll let you go. If you, if you stop, you can come down and you can go. And so this is being mulled by the few rebels. And I've told this story before, but this is what Jesus will think every time he walks past this mountain. Because no Jew ever forgot this. A father comes out with his family. And they've been hiding, avoiding the Romans' attention. And he has his eight children up there with him. And he takes his first child out to the edge of the cliff. And he kills him. And he throws him down the cliff. Josephus says, this is the Galilean answer to Herod. I would rather kill myself and my entire family than surrender to you in Rome. What happens when an unstoppable force hits an unmovable object? What happens when the evil of Rome corrupts people of faith so that they won't, they won't stop? This man will go on to kill all of his kids and kill himself. Um, and it, it shocked everybody. This is the place that Jesus gathered with the disciples and gave the Sermon on the Mount. Do you understand? I mean, in a way that words can't. The, the rocks and the blood speak. So think of this. A place of blood and violence. As Pastor Steve takes us to a, a very different teaching from a de- very different Galilean. So before we go to the actual uh, passages in the Sermon on the Mount that I think would have particularly elicited an emotional reaction out of people relative to the place where they're at so whenever you hear the name of the town Uvalde you will never think of it the same way again before what happened in May the thing I thought about Uvalde was Jay Biediger and Elizabeth uh, Kalk and Matthew McConaughey yeah right and so those are the people that I knew from other places that I've been that grew up in Uvalde. Now, think about the parents who lost their kids. And every time they have to drive by the school or where that, I think they're going to tear down the school or whatever, how they must feel. It's almost as if Jesus would gather at that elementary school in Uvalde. Perfect. To give the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the ones that fight to the bitter end, but blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do the Psalms begin? Sermon on the Mount begins the same way. Blessed are those who mourn. Like there's people that are still mourning the loss of their uh, ancestors at that very place. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, verse 5 is where we start to get a little bit, no, not a little bit, but really controversial. Like, what makes someone not teachable? When they are convinced that in their own eyes and in their own mind, they know what is best. Pastor Kurt, what were the Jews utterly convinced of at that place? This is our land, and you're not going to take it from us, period. And you're never going to stop. Right. It's going to keep going to the point 
of, in essence, sacrificing your own kids to throw them down, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. <laughs> and you know, here, the power of what Steve just said, inherit the land. Right. When that's used biblically, that's the promised land. That's the place. I mean, can you hear what Jesus is saying this there? Um, about mourning and suffering and inherit. You want land? This is how it's going to happen. It's not through suicide. Yeah. And, and so don't, don't read meekness as milk toast. That's not meekness. Really, the essence of what meekness is, is having a teachable spirit. What you want from kids, like if you're coaching kids or you're teaching kids, you want them to be teachable. You want them to be coachable. And you can't be coached or taught if you think you know the way. That is meekness. Going on down, blessed are the merciful, which their mantra would have been no mercy. But the way of the kingdom is showing mercy because you'll be shown it yourself. And this is just getting started, right, relative to all, all that would have been experienced there. Uh, let's just flip on over to the end, to the end of chapter 5 of Matthew. This is Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, translating this to what we kind of live into in our lives here in Midland, Texas. God, I hope you don't have an enemy in your life that would go on to the level of a Roman or one of Herod's men. Hopefully, you don't have that. If you do, come talk to us because we need to help you navigate that. But there are people in your life that have risen to the level of, man, you just don't like them. And you don't like to be around them. And you just soon, you never have to deal with them or see them ever again. I'm sure many of us have those people in our lives. The people that lost their lives at that cliff were definitely there with you, right? But it says, do not resist an evil person. So there's not this, there's this invitation through the resources and the values of the kingdom of God that empowers us not to retreat back from our enemies, but to always be in this posture of availability, of stepping towards. One of the greatest things that I have learned in my life is that hurting people hurt. Got it? That that's a lot of the way in which people deal with their own pain is they lash out to others. So just think about that. If there, there's somebody that's risen to that level in your mind and they are arranging their life in such a way to inflict pain on you, that if the starting point is, oh my gosh, what has happened to them? Maybe that can give you a little bit of space to not, not give the benefit of the doubt and to step forward instead of stepping back. Do not resist an evil person. If someone slashes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you, and this is definitely an, an allusion to a Roman, Roman soldier, because this is what Roman soldiers would do, is they would force uh, locals to carry their stuff for them, right? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, 
And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think I've told this story before, but for my life it bears repeating. Uh, Whenever I left Midland uh, back in 2010 to go to Abilene, it got off to a rocky start, uh, to say the least. There were things that happened before I got there that caused us. It was not. It was not about me. There were just going to be certain people that were had determined in their mind to make my life miserable. And as we were, as much like we did here, uh, we invited y'all. Or we we gathered in people's homes uh, to kind of hear from you, get to know you, and we were doing all of those actually in our in our own house uh, in Abilene. We had everybody in the church over one night. Uh, this was probably in August after we'd been there for about six weeks. We were having one of these conversations, and it was going well. And there was one person that was particularly antagon- and upset about what had happened. And, um, and so she decided she was going to come unglued in my own house. And she said, Steve, can you just explain to everybody when you're going to stop lying to them? Wow. Um, one of the things that I have taken great pride in is that I always tell the truth. And so I was deeply upset by this word, right? And of course, everybody was upset too. And uh, so after she said that, she got up and stormed out of my house. And so we go back and we try to get the rest of the evening going again, right? That was kind of hard. But the next morning, I get up and I go to work. And that afternoon, it was in the summer, before school started, somebody comes knocking on the door. All the kids go to the door, of course. That was before the twins, by the way. It was the other kids go to the door. And they open the door, and there's this woman at the door crying. And she says to my wife, I'm so sorry about the way these people are treating you. And so I was like, whoa, this is getting pretty heavy. It's not just this, but it's like, oh, wow. And so Elena's got these kids. This woman's crying. They're like all confused. So she leaves. And so it was either Levi or Sam. Mom, why don't people like us? And Elena said, oh, honey, they love you fine. They just don't like your dad. So kudos to my wife. She walks in to the kitchen with the kids and they start baking cookies. And they get the, and we, we make really good chocolate chip cookies, y'all. Really good. And so they bake, she bakes these cookies and she knew the two or three people that were causing all the problem. And so she took these cookies with the kids to these people's houses. Think that made an impression on those kids? Think so. So, see, this is how it's done, right? It is not stepping back. It's finding creative ways to move forward. Think that was hard for Elena to do that? Dang. She actually loves me. She didn't like, doesn't like how people are, are talking about me. It's really hard, right? How much harder for these poor Jewish people at the side of this mountain who have lost their uh, ancestors in these very places, to these very people that Jesus is inviting them. So we, we, can't get, we can't get off the hook here. This is probably the hardest teachings of Jesus right here, to love your enemies and to do good to them and to pray for those who persecute you. Hard, hard stuff. But comparatively speaking, at least from my perspective, we don't have Roman-type people breathing down our, our necks. Now, if we have elevated somebody from the other political party to that kind of vitriol, I don't think people in our church do that. Hope not, anyway. We've got a problem. But that's kind of the, the mode in our nation, right, is that we're at each other. Well... How does the circle of anger and hate and violence stop? 
Well, the Jewish perspective was violence. The kingdom perspective is to love your enemies and to do good to them. So that's your challenge tonight. Who are those people in your life? And maybe they're just not even in your life, but they're out there. Oh, our nation's going to pot. Well, who's going to do something about that? People of the kingdom. So who is Jesus from his mountaintop perch as he is speaking to us, inviting you to step towards? So we'll follow this development of Jesus over the next couple of weeks. People said when they heard this in the context, this one teaches like nobody else. He teaches, they say, with Shimka, with authority. Now that doesn't mean he was confident. It means it's a new interpretation. They've never heard it before. And like Steve said, you know, and I'm sure it was a lot of, what? What did he just say? Yeah. You know, blessed be the peacemaker. <laughs> Jesus, we're sitting at the Alamo, right? It, it's, it's hard to talk about the peacemaker. But Jesus is the Jew that defeated Rome. Yeah. Think about it. Now, did Jesus say, you know what? We need to accept the sexual morals of the Romans. It's okay to have multiple wives. It's okay to be homosexual. It's okay to embrace Roman culture. Does he do that? No. He will defend what it is to be Jewish literally to his death. He could have compromised with the Romans when Pilate had him and just said, oh, whatever you want, Pilate. You know, I'm a doormat. Jesus does not do that. This is not just giving in. This is not becoming the monster that you're fighting. Many, not all Jews, but many in the country will continue down this path of rage. And about 33 years after Jesus' death, 66 BC or AD, a massive uh, revolt begins in the country. And again, it's unthinkable that the Jews could fight back, but they do it. They wipe out a Roman legion. Now, to put this in perspective, no other military force on the planet had been able to do that up until that point in Jewish history. Not Hannibal with his elephants, not the German warriors coming out of the, the forests, not the Brits, not the Persians on their horses. Nobody had completely eradicated a legion. And the Jews did it. Just based on this faith that would not stop. And then they turned around and did it again when the reinforcements arrived. So it, it's faith that got twisted and became monstrous, where Jesus is trying to say, our faith can move mountains. But think about where you're moving that mountain. And think about the mountain where I grew up. That mountain can be the Sermon of the Mount, where we learned a new way to live. Or it can be the mountain where we were so hateful, we killed our own children, despite our enemy. That's the choice that's laid before us. We don't give in. We don't morally compromise. But we don't give up. We don't become the enemy. It's a tough road to walk. And only I think God could teach it to us. But it's one I think as a church we're, we feel called to. Um, and it's one our world needs. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we love you. If maybe not your hometown. Father God, we know there is a lot to learn as we turn over these stones. But we are touched tonight. That when you came to earth to be with us, you came in the middle of a war. A time in which we as humans were at our worst. We were killing and murdering and slaughtering and no hand was innocent. And yet you still loved us. In the midst of it, you said it's not your will that we die. You offered yourself in the midst of it when no one else cared about anything than hurting their enemy. Father, we long for this kingdom. We long for your presence. Help us as devout disciples to study your footprints here on earth so that we understand how to walk in heaven. We understand the reality. You're not some God made up from a mountain with fairy tales. You are the real God who walked in a broken world 
looked at broken people, hurt people, murderous people, and showed them love. May we do the same. Whether it's taking cookies to those that are nasty to us, or ending family feuds that have gone on too long. May hurt and hate have no purchase in our caves. Just the love of you and the memory of what you've done. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Good night. That's good work. Excellent. Excellent. That's it.